Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is the, your host for today's event. Uh, and I want to give a special welcome to you because, of course, we're um, here in the brand new F.A. Hayek Auditorium. And uh, this is the inaugural event for this auditorium. So we're especially proud to be hosting it for you. As you may have noticed, we are not yet finished with everything. The uh, furniture has not yet arrived for the uh, podium. And uh, we've got some other touching up to do, but that goes with uh, construction. And we're very fortunate to be uh, as far along as we are. Um, today, um, the, um, the um, topic is, of course, the subject uh, of next week, namely, uh, is the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act constitutional. Uh, on Monday, the Supreme Court uh, begins six hours of oral argument running over three days on that question. Uh, this will be a preview, both pro and con, of those oral arguments. Uh, our first panel uh, will look at the question whether Congress can order individuals to buy health insurance, the uh, individual mandate. Our second panel uh, right after lunch, uh, we'll ask whether Congress uh, can uh, use its taxing power to compel states to expand their Medicaid coverage. Uh, without doubt, uh, Florida, the Department of Health and Human Services, is the most important case to come before the Supreme Court. In several decades, it is because it will raise the fundamental question of whether there are any limits on federal power under the Constitution. So let's begin. I'm going to turn the panel over to our moderator, uh, the uh, Ilya Shapiro. Um, and I'm going to give just a summary of his uh, uh, bio, because you have in your packages the bios for each of us. Um, Ilya is a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School, after which he clerked for E. Uh, Jolly Grady. A Grady Jolly of the uh, Fifth Circuit. Um, he uh, is uh, the editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review and a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. And he has been responsible for orchestrating the, a wide range of amicus briefs that are now before the Supreme Court. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Ilya and please welcome him. Thanks very much, uh, Roger, and uh, welcome to you all. Um, I'm just going to get uh, right into some short introductions uh, before we get to our main event uh, you've been waiting patiently for. Um, you know, the, the Roger uh, called uh, the legislation we're discussing the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. The official title of this forum is Obamacare, but really we all know that the accurate title for this uh, law is the Libertarian Legal Scholar Full Employment Act. Um, I've been uh, really busy with all this stuff, and I'm, I'm happy that uh, Randy Barnett is here because I'm practically making a living on uh, speaking appearances and uh, writing opportunities that he turns down. So thank you, Randy, for being uh, even busier than I am. Um, we'll begin with uh, Michael Cannon, who is Cato's Director of Health Policy Studies. Uh, one thing I just learned for the first time about Michael that uh, in reading his bio is that he was cited by the Washington Post as an influential healthcare wonk at the Libertarian Cato Institute. So uh, that's, that's, that's um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll look to learn uh, even more. I use Michael as an excuse. Whenever I get some tough questions in my public speaking, I say, look, I'm a simple constitutional lawyer. You really want to know about this healthcare stuff, you talk to Michael. He'll be followed by Randy Barnett, the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. Uh, Randy famously argued uh, the last big case relevant uh, to our discussions here, Gonzalez versus uh, Rach in 2004. And he's also been called by the New York Times the intellectual godfather of the lawsuits against uh, the individual mandate and Obamacare more broadly. And uh, uh, last but not least, we have Elizabeth Wydra, who is the chief counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center, uh, which is a think tank, law firm, and action center dedicated to fulfilling the progressive promise of the Constitution's text and history. Uh, she frequently participates, uh, as do uh, a lot of us uh, in this business, in uh, amicus briefs before the Supreme Court. Uh, and she's actually, unlike many of us, has argued uh, several big cases in the federal courts uh, of appeal. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Michael, uh, and then we'll hear from some lawyers, and then we'll keep going. Thank you, Ilya, and thank you, Roger, for putting this together. And, um, and thank you for reading that quote from the Washington Post. It sounds like an impressive quote, but they're just quoting me saying that. So <laughs> it's really less impressive when you, when you know the full story. Uh, Roger told me that I would have the honor of being the first person to really present here in Cato's new Hayek Auditorium. And I have to tell everyone who's going to follow me that the view from right here is fantastic. So let's, let's, let's jump right into the individual mandate, though. Last month, the USA Today Gallup poll <coughs> found that 72% of Americans think Obamacare's individual mandate is unconstitutional. What's really remarkable about that is that 56% of Democrats and 54% of those who support the law as a whole think the individual mandate is unconstitutional and therefore illegal. And an Associated Press uh, National Constitution Center poll has consistently found that more than 80% of Americans believe the government should not have the power to force Americans to purchase health insurance. Now, Obamacare's defenders will say that, well, voters oppose this law because they're confused. Well, of course they're confused. This law is 2,000 pages long. How can you not be confused? It's generating additional thousands of pages of regulations. The Department of Health and Human Services has so far issued 200 pages of guidance on how to draft a four-page summary of health benefits. When they released their, their by the way, their sample four-page summary, it was eight pages long. Everyone is confused about this law, but none more so than its defenders. Nearly every claim that they make about the individual mandate is a myth. An individual mandate, for example, does not make health insurance more affordable, as they claim. It makes coverage more expensive by forcing consumers to purchase additional coverage that they do not want and may even find morally offensive. The mandate has already increased some people's health insurance premiums by as much as 30%. Before the mandate has even taken full effect, these aspects have already increased health insurance premiums by more than cost shifting from the uninsured does. So the mandate will not eliminate cost shifting from the uninsured, but even if it did, it would still increase, increase premiums. The mandate does not reduce cost shifting, as it suggests. It increases cost shifting. One of Obamacare's uh, leading cheerleaders is an economist named Jonathan Gruber. He's projected that when the mandate takes full effect in 2014, it will cause some people's health insurance premiums to double. Think about that. Think about how much you pay for health insurance right now. Think of that amount and now imagine doubling it. 
That's because the law will force a lot of healthy people to pay higher premiums to subsidize the sick. But that doesn't reduce the cost of covering the sick. It just shifts that cost to others. And as cost shifting always does, that leads to higher costs overall. President Obama has said the mandate and the rest of the law will save lives. The problem is he doesn't have any solid evidence to back that up. In fact, while Congress was debating Obamacare, researchers in Oregon were conducting the only study ever to generate solid evidence on whether broad-based expansions of health insurance saves lives, and the president and Congress couldn't wait couldn't bother, couldn't be bothered to wait for the results. So far, that Oregon study has not found that broad-based coverage expansion save, save lives. And there's even less reason to think that Obamacare will, because Obamacare expands coverage to a group that is on average more affluent and therefore has a higher baseline access to care than the people in that Oregon study. President Obama has also claimed that imposing an individual mandate and the rest of the law shows that he cares. You may remember this when he embraced that term that we all use, uh, Obamacare. He said, I don't mind people calling it Obamacare. It means Obama cares. The underlying assumption here, though, uh, is that Obamacare is compassionate and that supporting it makes you a compassionate person. Now, I want to warn any Obamacare supporters out there uh, that what I'm about to say may sting a little. But if you were a compassionate person, then you would support whatever policy saves the most lives or creates the most financial security with the several trillion dollars that Obamacare spends. Just as there's no solid evidence that Obamacare will save lives, there's even less reason to think that Obamacare will save the maximum number of lives possible with the trillions of dollars that it spends. So in fact, Obamacare is not compassionate, <laughs> neither you if you support it, because by supporting Obamacare, rather than experiments that would show which policies save the most lives per dollar spent, you're revealing that you're willing to forego more life-saving uses of that money in order to get whatever other X factor Obamacare delivers to you, whatever other X factor it brings you. You're literally willing to let some people die who might have been saved by more life-saving uses of that money. But Obamacare's opponents have also advanced a myth uh, about the individual mandate. Opponents will tell you that the myth is the centerpiece of Obamacare. It is not. The centerpiece of Obamacare is the set of government price controls that Obamacare imposes on health insurance. Price controls that tell insurance carriers they must charge healthy and sick people of a given age the same premiums. Healthcare wonks call these rating restrictions or community rating because they would rather the public not recognize them as price controls. Price controls are always harmful, but these are so harmful that the rest of Obamacare, including the individual mandate, can fairly be described as attempts to undo the damage that these price controls cause. For example, these government price controls are so destabilizing, they typically cause health insurance markets to collapse because they so dramatically increase premiums for healthy consumers that healthy people leave the market altogether. The market for child-only health insurance policies has already collapsed in 17 states and is slowly collapsing in another 17 states because Obamacare has already imposed these price controls on, that, on those markets. The individual mandate is an attempt to undo the destabilizing effects of these government price controls by forcing healthy people to pay Obamacare's inflated insurance premiums. The mandate won't quite do the trick, though, because millions of households won't be able to afford that expensive coverage and could still save thousands of dollars by dropping coverage and paying the penalty. So Obamacare's trillions of dollars in health insurance subsidies are a further attempt to undo the destabilizing effects of its price controls by bribing low-income uh, people and healthy people to stay in the market. 
The employer mandate, in turn, is an attempt to keep the cost of those subsidies down by preventing employers from dropping their health benefits so that their workers can take advantage of those subsidies. But Obamacare's price controls don't just affect the healthy and create perverse and harmful incentives there. They also hurt the sick because they literally force insurance carriers to compete to see who can provide the, the worst coverage for sick people. If a certain type, think about it, if a certain type of patient costs $1 million to insure and Obamacare tells insurance carriers they can only charge those patients a $10,000 premium, then what happens to insurance carriers who provide the best coverage to those million-dollar patients? That insurance carrier will attract every one of those million-dollar patients and will go out of business because each of those patients will bring down its bottom line by $990,000. Obamacare's price controls literally create a race to the bottom because they force insurance companies to compete to see who can provide the worst coverage to the sick. And they do that in the hopes, uh, insurance carriers will do so in the hopes that the sickest patients will choose their competitors instead and bring down their competitors' bottom lines. Ian Pearl is a victim of Obamacare-style price controls. Shelby Rogers is another victim of Obamacare-style price controls. Their insurance companies competed to avoid them because they already operate in markets subject to Obamacare-style price controls. Obamacare includes more mandates and regulations and programs whose purpose is to stop insurance carriers from doing what its price controls force them to do to survive. Obamacare creates three separate programs that, all, that attempt to tax all health plans and subsidize those that get the most Ian Pearls and, and the most Shelby Rogerses. Obamacare regulates health insurance marketing, benefit design, network adequacy, plan offerings, each plan's service area, the amount that carriers spend on administration, all to prevent, all to try to prevent carriers from doing what its price controls reward them for, for doing. None of this will work any more than the individual mandate is going to work. Uh, the biggest of these programs is the uh, so-called risk adjustment program. And as health economists Henry Aaron and Austin Fracht have explained, Quote, insurers have been able to outfox the best risk adjustment algorithms. In all, I count at least 14 programs and regulations whose purpose is to fix or mitigate the damage done by Obamacare's price controls. So the, the mandate is not so much Obamacare's centerpiece as merely one of a cascading series of efforts to prevent the catastrophic harm that the law's price controls would inflict. And this brings me to what I think is the final and most brazen myth that supporters have peddled about an individual mandate. Specifically, that's the myth that an individual mandate promotes personal responsibility. And again, if there are any Obamacare supporters out there, this one might sting a little too. The mandate does not promote personal responsibility. It promotes personal irresponsibility. Obamacare supporters wanted to impose these sorts of government price controls on health insurance, the sort that causes health insurance markets to collapse, that causes insurers to compete to uh, provide the worst care possible to the sick. Supporters could have taken personal responsibility for that decision. They could have launched their own health insurance plan that operates under those sorts of uh, uh, pricing schemes. Or they could have uh, tried to restabilize the market, perhaps by personally subsidizing some people's premiums to try to keep them from leaving the market. But that's not what they did. Instead, they imposed a mandate that forces us to pay with our money and our freedom to fix a problem that they created with their price controls. So the entire purpose of an individual mandate is to enable supporters to avoid taking responsibility for their decisions. And I defy you to find a more brazen example of personal irresponsibility. Thank you.
Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ilya. <clears throat> it's a great pleasure uh, to be here at the inaugural program at the Cato's, at Cato Institute's uh, F.A. Hayek Auditorium to see all of you out here. It's a beautiful facility. Uh, I hope to come here many times again in the future. It's also a great pleasure to be debating my friend Elizabeth Wydra, uh, someone with whom I've debated this issue uh, uh, on numerous occasions in the past, and someone with whom I co-authored uh, uh, an amicus brief to the Supreme Court defending the individual right to keep and bear arms against the city of Chicago, which the Constitutional Accountability Center um, uh, supported uh, in filing that brief. And I think they're to be commended for that uh, uh, act of uh, commitment to uh, the original meaning of the actual Constitution. Uh, today, my, I'm charged with uh, giving you a briefing, an overview of the lawsuit that you're going to hear next week, uh, a lawsuit that, as Ilya told you, is going to take consume six hours of argument spread over three days. Uh, that's the longest argument uh, time being allotted in 47 years. Um, it, no matter how this case is decided, no matter how the court comes out, there's already been one claim that has been definitively refuted by the fact that the court granted six hours of oral argument spread over three days. And that is that the challenge to the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, and in particular the individual mandate, is somehow frivolous or an easy case, which you actually still hear in the media even this week. Um, I can just assure you that the Supreme Court does not have to dedicate three days of oral argument and six hours of argument to hear an easy case, to resolve an easy case, uh, to dismiss a frivolous claim. But that is what 99.9% .9 of my colleague law professors were saying uh, when this challenge was first brought, when these arguments were first made, when this challenge was first brought, and all the way up until today. And at the end of this talk, I'm going to say a little bit about the spin that you've been hearing, or at least many people have been hearing in the press this week, about how the conservative justices on the court must rule uh, if they're supposed to be consistent with the rulings that they've, they've made in the past, which is a complete uh, myth, in my view. But to begin with, I'm just going to summarize the case and summarize the arguments against the individual man mandate. But for those of you who don't follow this case as closely as we on this panel do, let me just summarize how the argument's going to go next week. Um, so on Monday, the court is going to hear 90 minutes of oral argument uh, discussing the issue of the Anti-Tax Injunction Act, which is a provision of law which basically says that you can't uh, challenge in a collection of a tax in advance of that tax's collection. You first have to pay the tax, and then you have to sue for a refund. And the question is whether that statute would apply to the penalty of the that's provided uh, to enforce the individual mandate. On the second day, Tuesday, the court's going to hear oral argument for two hours about the constitutionality of the individual mandate. That's double the normal argument time devoted just to that single issue. On Wednesday in the morning, the court's going to hear 90-minute worth of argument on the severability question. That is, whether if you strike down the individual mandate is unconstitutional, how much of the rest of the bill, if any, must be struck down? Some of it, the insurance company regulations, for example, or all of it. Um, by the way, I represent the National Federation of Independent Business, the private parties uh, that are challenging the mandate. Uh, we. Uh, we believe on that issue, uh, we agree with the district court that held that if the mandate goes, the entire act must go. The government concedes that if the mandate goes, the health insurance regulations that Michael just told you about, they also have to go. And the court had to appoint an amicus, uh, a friend of the court, to argue that the, the position held by the 11th Circuit that the mandate can be struck down alone and the rest of the bill remains up and running. That's an argument that's going to take 90 minutes on Wednesday morning. And on Wednesday afternoon, a very important challenge to the constitutionality of the Medicaid requirements that are being imposed on the states will be heard in the afternoon for one hour. Um, and that is, an, uh, that is the topic 
of this afternoon's panel uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, in today's talk, I am not going to talk at all about the Anti-Injunction Act. I think some of you will be relieved to hear that. Um, I'm not going to talk about severability unless you want to ask me about that if there's any time for questions, and I'm not going to talk about the Medicaid challenge. I'm simply going to lay out why it is at the fundamental level the individual insurance mandate that requires every person in the United States to purchase private health insurance um, uh, to, is unconstitutional. Now, as you can well imagine, um, this is a very technical issue involving a lot of precedents, uh, the reasoning of a lot of cases, a lot of technical uh, uh, text, and, and that's not something that can be effectively presented uh, orally in what I probably have is about eight more minutes. Um, so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to just basically give you what I consider to be the four most salient reasons why this lawsuit, contrary to the opinions of the experts, this lawsuit did have legs, and this lawsuit is serious, and this lawsuit is going to be a very difficult one, not an easy one, for the Supreme Court to decide. And I'm going to make four points that will involve four words. They'll organize around four words. One, the first word is unprecedented. The second word is uncabined, which is a word that lawyers like to use to say unlimited. The third word is unnecessary. And the fourth word is dangerous. Unprecedented. Well, you've heard about unprecedented. You've heard on, uh, the issue about unprecedented. Um, this mandate, this claim of power by the United States Congress is literally without precedent. And what I mean by that, to translate this into ordinary language, is it has never been done before. That's what I mean by unprecedented. Never in the history of the United States to enforce any other law um, has, the, has the Congress claimed the, uh, claimed the power to require that all American citizens enter into contracts and do business with private companies. Uh, uh, and they certainly have not claimed that under the commerce power, which is what they're doing now. So this is an unprecedented act of power. And not only, I mean, there's two ways of establishing that. One is I can ask all of you in this room to think of any other contract that the federal government requires you to enter into upon pain of a penalty payable to the IRS. None of you can think of any, nor could your parents, nor could your grandparents, because this has never been done before. And every court, of, every court who has decided on this case has agreed with that. The courts that have struck the law down have said it was unprecedented, and the courts that have upheld, have upheld the law have said it's unprecedented. Now, what difference does that make? It is very true, as defenders of the law say, that just because something has never been done before, uh, uh, that does not automatically mean it's unconstitutional. There's a first time for everything. And before Congress does something that's constitutional for the first time, uh, we have to find out if it's constitutional. So the fact that it's unprecedented doesn't automatically make it unconstitutional. But it does mean, number one, that there's no direct authority that says the Congress may do this. So that's true. Right off the bat, we're talking about a, what we call a case of first impression. And the second thing is a, pre, is a proposition of law that Justice Scalia uh, observed in the Prince versus United States case, which involved the, um, the enforcement of the Brady Act. Um, and what Justice Scalia said, and, and in that case, what, the, what Congress was trying to do was force local sheriffs to do background checks on prospective gun purchasers, even though local sheriffs work for the state, the counties of their states. They don't work for the federal government. And that was an unprecedented claim of power as well. And what Justice Scalia said is that if for 200 years a power this attractive has gone unused by Congress, that is a pretty good argument that that power does not exist. And the same thing can be said about the individual insurance mandate. If for 230 years the Congress has gone 
and solved all kinds of free rider problems and all sorts of cost shifting problems. And we fought several major wars. And we've fought wars on poverty and wars on drugs. And we've done all of those things without having to impose an economic mandate in the past, even though that would be a very highly attractive power. Rather than paying you cash for your clunkers, we could just go make you buy a new car. And then we wouldn't have to pay any money out of the public treasury. Even though that's a very attractive power, Congress has never sought to exercise it. That's a good argument, actually, for why the power probably doesn't exist. So it, there actually is a constitutional significance to the fact that this law is unprecedented. Second, the law is uncabined, or it's unlimited. So far, the government, and this has really been quite remarkable to me, in the two years in which this case has been argued and litigated, the government and its defenders have been unable to come up with a single limiting principle on the exercise of the power to impose economic mandates of the people. At oral argument in the uh, Seven Sky case, the Sky Seven case, um, uh, in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, um, the, judges, the justices pressed the government attorney for 10 law minutes to give a single example of a mandate that the government would be unable to impose on its theory of why it can impose this mandate, and the government's attorney was unable to provide a single one. I was recently told by a reporter that in a press conference when the, when the Justice Department was filing their briefs in this case, the reporters asked them what the limiting principle was for this power, and the Justice Department lawyers were unable to answer their questions. The reporters repeatedly asked them this question, and the Justice Department lawyers grew somewhat frustrated at the inability of the, lawyers to, to, of the reporters to take no for an answer that we don't have an answer to the question of what the limiting principle is. It is just a fundamental principle of constitutional law that the federal government and the Congress is one of limited and enumerated powers. And unless you can state that limit, then that's likely to be a losing argument in court. Now, there is one thing that the defenders of the bill do say when the issue of limits come up. And the government says this in their briefs, and every defender of the bill will say this at some time or another. And that is, although I think Elizabeth doesn't actually say this, so you won't necessarily hear this from her, but every other defender of the briefs of, of, the, of the law says this. And that is that somehow health care is different. There's something about the health care market. There's something about insurance. There's something that's distinctive about this particular thing. And for that reason, that distinguishes this from everything else. And whenever you hear anybody say that, what you have to remember is that even if that's true, and by the way, it's not, but even if it were true, that would not provide a constitutional argument. It would not provide a constitutional limit. That is, the response to that is, OK, fine, health care is different. Now, what's your constitutional limit on the imposition of this power? And why is that? Well, because. Um, the court is, is simply not the next time an economic mandate is being used by Congress going to have a fact-based inquiry in which they decide whether the next act of imposing an economic mandate is like this one, whether the next market is going to be sufficiently similar to the healthcare market in order to um, justify an economic mandate in the, next, uh, in the next case. And that's because the Supreme Court just doesn't get into factual inquiries like that. And they won't in the future. So this is just a smokescreen for having no limiting principle at all. Um, and if you don't have any limiting principle, then that means that upholding the mandate is going to, provide, is going to pose a theory, serious threat. In fact, it's going to end the system of the limited and enumerated powers that we've lived with in this country since the founding. The, fourth, the third uh, reason why there's a problem with this law is that it's unnecessary. Congress had powers that it could have used to accomplish very nearly what it was trying to accomplish here. Not the same way. They didn't just have to change the name here or there. But they really did have powers, very powerful ones, the ones they always use to, to subsidize activities that they don't have the power directly to command. And that is their taxing and spending power. And yet they chose not to use those powers. And why is that? Well, we know why that is. It was political, which is exactly the constraint that exists on the taxing power. 
And that is the president ran for office saying that he would not raise taxes on people making less than $200,000. The Democrats on the Senate, in the Senate, the 60 Democrats in the Senate, uh, were not prepared to support any kind of tax increase. And as a result, they didn't use the power that they had for strictly political reasons to accomplish what they say they, say they want to accomplish with this bill. Because it's unnecessary, it is simply not a justification that, in other words, it is not a justification that you have to use this mandate because it's the only means that's necessary when Congress had the power to that they could have exercised to solve this problem, and yet they chose not to. However, um, had they done that, it would have been a whole lot better than what, they, what they've now, than the power they're now trying to claim, which brings me to my final point, that this particular power is dangerous. And why is that? Because when Congress tries to incentivize Americans to do what they want them to do, but they don't have the power to command them to do, the only consequence of Americans not doing what Congress wants them to do is they have to forego some kind of financial benefit. If you don't want to trade your clunker in, you have to forego the $5,000 they were willing to pay you in order to destroy that perfectly good car and drive uh, business to the American car companies. And so that's what you have to give up. However, if this individual mandate is upheld as constitutional, even though in this case it's only being for enforced by a monetary penalty, in the future, in the future, it could be enforced by the full panoply of enforcement mechanisms that are typically and historically used to enforce the Commerce Clause, up to and including imprisonment. So this mandate may seem innocuous, but the next mandate doesn't have to be, and that's why this power is a lot more dangerous than the tax power would be. Now let me conclude uh, just by talking a little bit about the spin that you've been hearing lately, at least in the last week about why certain conservative justices have to vote to uphold the mandate or they would be contradicting themselves. The first one, which is the most ludicrous, has to do with Chief Justice Roberts, who has said um, has to uphold the mandate because he signed on to an interpretation of the Necessary and Proper Clause in a case called United States versus Comstock, which involved a, uh, a child uh, sexual predators law that restrict, that empowered the federal prison system to hold on to people who had been adjudicated as sexually dangerous beyond their prison sentences. And the question is, could Congress do that under its necessary and proper clause? Well, in the Comstock opinion, there is narrowing language. There is narrowing language that says Comstock, the law in Comstock is actually a very uh, a modest addition to existing federal power. It is an area that the federal government has occupied for a very long time. And there's a state opt-out. For any state that wants to reclaim their own prisoners, they're free to do so, so it accommodates federalism. And that's the opinion that Chief Justice Roberts signed on to. But notice this about the Comstock opinion. It had limits built into its text, the ones I just told you about. But if you hear constitutional law experts talk about Comstock now, they don't care about those limits what was written into that opinion. They just say, oh, Congress can do anything under the Necessary and Proper Clause. Now, read Comstock. That's what's going to happen if, they, if the Supreme Court tries to limit this power by the use of some sort of, some sort of uh, textual limits like health care is different. Now, the final example I'm going to give is the one about uh, Justice Scalia, who wrote a concurring opinion in the case that I brought to the Supreme Court, the Rage case involving medical marijuana. I must tell you, I was very disappointed in Justice Scalia's vote. I was disappointed in his opinion. But in his opinion, which he concurred with the majority written by Justice Stevens, Justice Scalia relied on the necessary and proper clause. And what is said is, because Justice Scalia said in that case that the because it was it because the reaching of my client's marijuana that was being grown for her by caregivers privately and not commercially because it was it was essential to the broader 
prohibition of interstate marijuana, that they be able to reach that intrastate non-economic activity, therefore it was constitutional. Let me say that again. What Justice Scalia held was, it was okay to reach my client's marijuana because it was essential to a broader regulation of interstate commerce, which was the prohibition of interstate marijuana. I could say a lot more about what that means, but I'm going to just, because I've run out of time, I'm just going to say one thing about that opinion by Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia's opinion, which was expressly about the necessary and proper clause, was only about the word necessary in the necessary and proper clause. The issue was whether essential to a broader regulatory scheme would be interpreted in the same deferential way as the word necessary has been interpreted in the past by the Supreme Court, meaning Congress basically has discretion when it chooses means amongst the various means that might be convenient to its end. And Justice Scalia basically adopted that approach, much to our disappointment. But here's what that opinion said not one word about. It said not one word about the word proper in the Necessary and Proper Clause, which said, and the Necessary and Proper Clause says that Congress shall have power to, ma to make laws which shall be necessary and proper to carry into execution its foregoing powers. There's nothing in the Rage case about the word proper. And yet, it's Justice Scalia himself in the Prince case who said that the unprecedented imposition of a power to coerce local sheriffs to enforce federal law in, in, in the Brady Act by, by making them run gun checks, he said that was beyond the power of commerce, Congress's commerce power to enact. And he said he called the necessary and proper clause that was being offered to defend that power the last refuge of those who would defend the ultra-virus powers of Congress. And to that argument, he said, while that law may be necessary, it is not a proper exercise of power. So if there's any justice on the Supreme Court that will be very capable of distinguishing his concurring opinion in Raich from this case, it's the justice that has made the greatest use of the distinction between necessary and proper. And how will he do that? Because an individual mandate to make every man, woman, and child do business with a private company at the whim of Congress, just because Congress thinks it's convenient to its regulation of interstate commerce, is not only unnecessary, as I've explained, it is also highly improper, and for that reason, it is unconstitutional. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me here. I am also honored to be part of the inaugural event in this wonderful new auditorium here at Cato. Um, and I also want to thank Cato because uh, I uh, carry around in my purse uh, all the time my pocket constitution. Um, and while I heartily disagree on many issues with what Cato thinks about what's inside the constitution, they have the best covers. This has lasted me for like 10 years. So, you know, while I'd like to carry one around for my liberal brethren, uh, you know, Cato, uh, you got it right on the cover. But let's talk about what's inside the Constitution. Um, in the Affordable Care Act challenges in the Supreme Court, I am honored to represent more than 500 state legislators from every state in the Union, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. You beat me. I only represent 333. I know. Believe me, we counted. Um, uh, and uh, we've filed in support of both the um, minimum coverage provision, known here today, I suppose, as the individual mandate, and the uh, Medicaid expansion, which will provide coverage to approximately 16 million more um, low-income Americans in the states. Um, but as I was preparing these briefs, I came across a quote from the great Chief Justice Marshall's opinion in Gibbons versus Ogden, uh, which having done these debates with Randy, 
before um, immediately made me think of, of him. And here's the quote. Powerful and ingenious minds, Randy, uh, taking as postulates that the powers expressly granted to the government of the union are to be contracted by construction into the narrowest possible compass and that the original powers of the states are retained if any possible construction will retain them, may by a course of well-digested but refined and metaphysical reasoning founded on these premises, explain away the constitution of our country and leave it a magnificent structure indeed to look at, but totally unfit for use. They may so entangle and perplex the understanding as to obscure principles which were before thought quite plain and induce doubts where, if the mind were to pursue its own course, none would be perceived. Now, I think Randy's arguments that you've heard here today and that he's uh, written in his briefs on behalf of his clients are very compelling. <coughs> but I think that they might be of the sort that Chief Justice Marshall was warning us about when he spoke of the brilliant and clever advocates who are trying to convince us that basic principles are essentially controversial and up for grabs. And I think next week when we hear Paul Clement stand up on behalf of the 26 states who have challenged the Affordable Care Act, we'll hear more of this. Paul Clement is a brilliant, wonderful, gifted advocate. Um, but before I get into why I think these arguments um, are not true to basic, uncontroverted principles of the Constitution, I want to talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act itself. Um, because I, uh, I disagree with the <laughs> characterization of the act that Michael gave earlier, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, and while I am also myself a, a merely a simple constitutional lawyer, um, Nobel Prize winning economists have disagreed with his um, take on the law and its consequences. So um, I would take uh, his presentation with a grain of spin, I mean a grain of salt. I don't know why I said that. Um, anyway, uh, the act was a response to what I hope everyone would agree was a national crisis in the healthcare system. Tens of millions of Americans do not have health insurance, either because they cannot afford the skyrocketing premiums, they would like to purchase insurance even at any price, but are uh, refused coverage because of pre-existing medical conditions, or simply because they choose not to purchase insurance and gamble that they will not need medical treatment beyond uh, that costs more than what they have in their own pockets. These uninsured shift more than $43 billion a year to other market participants. This is in part because in American law and culture, we require that emergency rooms and urgent care centers treat those who show up and need care, regardless of their ability to pay. And I will agree, uh, disagree with Ron Paul here and say that I think that is a very good thing. But when a person who does not have insurance shows up and gets treated and run up bills that they can't afford to pay, someone has to foot the bill. And this results in a more than, uh, well, approximately $1,000 increase a year in the average family's uh, insurance premiums and about $30 billion in taxpayer burden as a result of these uninsured costs that are shifted to other participants. So after extensive study, Congress chose to address this crisis through the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Um, and I'm happy to call it Obamacare. I think it sounds 
you know, lovely, kind of warm and fuzzy. Um, but so among, among other things, Obamacare created incentives for businesses to pay insurance, pay for insurance for their employees, provided for state exchanges where people can come together to get better deals on their insurance. Um, it established tax credits for eligible families to get insurance on these exchanges, allowed children under the age of 26 to stay on their parents' health insurance plan uh, longer than was previously possible, expanded Medicaid to cover millions more of the most vulnerable among us who need health care, and uh, put a ban on insurers discriminating against people based on pre-existing conditions or raising their premiums when they become sick. It also, of course, in the subject of today, uh, Im amended the Internal Revenue Code to provide that insurance who can afford to do so <coughs> but do not maintain a minimum level of health insurance um, pay a tax penalty if they choose not to get insurance. This shared responsibility payment paid by those who choose not to purchase insurance um, is a, a shared responsibility payment, which sounds pretty Ronald Reagan-y, um, but as uh, you know, uh, most people know it as the individual mandate. In putting together this reform package, Congress determined that the decisions about whether, when, and how to purchase health insurance were essentially economic. Congress also determined that without the individual mandate, many of the provisions of the law would not work. For example, the very popular uh, ban on discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions, um, as well as the guarantee that insurance companies will not raise your premiums if you get sick, which um, Michael refers to as price controls. But um, I think that many Americans, uh, and I think the polls back this up, actually would support <laughs> controlling price when it comes to insurance companies uh, jacking up their insurance premiums unnecessarily. But the question of the day is not whether this is a good law, it's whether it's a constitutional law. And I think it clearly is constitutional. And I'll give you uh, three main sources for the uh, authority that Congress has to pass the mandate. First, Congress's power, express power, to regulate interstate commerce among the several states. Two, Congress's power to pass laws that are necessary and proper to executing this commerce and other delegated powers. And three, the power to tax and spend for the general welfare. Um, I'm happy to talk about the taxing power more in questions, but for my comments right now, I will focus on the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause. So, applying these constitutional principles to the uh, case of the individual mandate, the arguments in support of the mandate boil down to, one, that the mandate is a valid exercise of Congress's Commerce Clause power because it regulates economic conduct, that is, how and when to pay for healthcare services in the massive interstate healthcare market. Two, even if you think that the mandate regulates non-economic conduct, uh, which certainly has been one of the arguments made, it is nonetheless within Congress's Commerce Clause power because the decision not to buy health insurance substantially affects interstate commerce and is part of a broader regulation of the healthcare um, industry, that is, the entire Affordable Care Act. 
Um, and I don't think that anyone would dispute um, that Congress has the authority to regulate um, the healthcare industry more generally, but we'll see. Um, finally, uh, well, I guess second to last, three, the mandate is a necessary and proper means of regulating commerce that is integral to the Affordable Care Act, um, and in particular, uh, I think the government would focus on that ban against pre-existing um, conditions discrimination. Um, and now, I'd like to unpack some of those so we can talk about whether you think that um, uh, these are truly basic principles of law that, are, uh, that should be easily understood. So first, I think it is difficult to see how the decision uh, to remain uninsured um, is not economic, or at the very least does not have a substantial effect on the interstate market. Those who choose not to purchase health insurance inflict costs of approximately $43 billion a year on other market participants and add $1,000 approximately to each American family's, um, to the average American family's insurance premium. That seems pretty economic to me. But even if you insist on categorizing the decision not to purchase health insurance as non-economic, um, you know, I, I think that we can look to Justice Scalia and see what he thinks. As Randy noted uh, in Gonzalez versus Raich, he wrote a concurrence that said, Congress may regulate even non-economic local activity if that regulation is as a necessary part of a more general regulation of interstate commerce. I think it's very difficult to get around that, and I uh, disagree with Randy. I think it will be pretty difficult for Justice Scalia to get around that um, when he considers the health care case. I also think it pretty much dooms the uh, opponents of the law's arguments, which Randy um, uh, did not make wisely um, in his arguments, um, that there is some sort of activity-inactivity distinction or um, some focus on non-economic versus economic. No one can seriously dispute that the Affordable Care Act is a general regulation of the interstate health services market, which comprises nearly 20% of our nation's economy. And as for the minimum coverage, uh, if you look back to Justice Scalia's quote, he says it um, must be a necessary part of a general regulation. So as far as it being necessary, to the ACA as a whole, um, again, we look to U.S. versus Comstock, um, which, I think, which I respectfully disagree with Randy's characterization of. Um, in that case, Chief Justice Roberts uh, joined Justice Breyer's sweeping opinion that said that um, uh, any means that is rationally related to the implementation of a constitutionally enumerated power um, is appropriate for Congress to use. Now, whether the, one thinks the mandate is good or bad policy, I think it's difficult to say that the minimum coverage provision is not rationally related to the indisputably valid regulation of the interstate market and health insurance. So, um, even if you aren't with me on the Commerce Clause, I just don't see how you can't be with me on the Necessary and Proper Clause. Um, the grant of power to pass legislation that is necessary and proper was intended to be sweeping. As the founding era Supreme Court held in McCulloch versus Maryland, the framers of the Constitution did not intend to impede the exercise of enumerated powers by withholding a choice of means, noting that unlike the Articles of Confederation, 
our enduring constitution does not require that everything granted be expressly and minutely described. Our first president, the rest of the framers, and the Supreme Court from the founding to the present have all recognized that the Necessary and Proper Clause grants Congress the power to use means outside the enumerated list of Article I powers to achieve the ends contemplated in those powers. So even if you don't think the minimum coverage provision is a valid regulation of interstate commerce, it can still be constitutional as a means of regulating the nearly 20% of our nation's economy that makes up the healthcare industry. Um, and I just want to take a moment to talk about this unprecedented argument. First, the cries of unprecedented in response to the individual mandate are, well, themselves far from unprecedented. We heard it in response to the founding era charter of a national bank, which this course, of course, rejected in uh, McCulloch versus Maryland. We heard it in response to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which the court also rightly rejected. We've heard it in response to uh, Social Security, environmental laws, the Voting Rights Act, all rejected. And there is a good reason in this case why Congress might not have exercised uh, the power to impose an individual mandate like it did in the Affordable Care Act. Um, the healthcare industry is now nearly 20% of our nation's economy, but that certainly wasn't true at the founding. And in fact, um, in the case that I quoted from at the beginning of my remarks, Gibbons versus Ogden, Chief Justice Marshall noted that at that time, uh, healthcare was something that was um, a purely local activity. I don't think that we could say that anymore, obviously, with 20% of our nation's economy going to the healthcare industry. Um, now, I want to say, finally, um, because I, my time is running short, that I totally agree, agree with Randy that there should be constitutional limits on the government's power under the Commerce Clause. I think, while it's true, the argument that the healthcare industry is different just isn't enough. You need to be able to show where in the Constitution there are limits. But I think there are real and important limits, and uh, unlike apparently the government uh, at some of these uh, press conferences, I'll give you several. First is the limit placed on the Commerce Clause power by the rest of the Constitution itself. So, for example, even if in the service of health care reform, Congress passed a law um, that allowed unreasonable and warrantless searches into um, health care companies' records, um, that regulation would be unconstitutional because it would violate the Fourth Amendment's guarantee against unreasonable searches and seizures. But there is no right in the Constitution to freeload off your neighbors if you decide not to purchase health insurance and run up bills that you can't pay. So first, anything that Congress does under the commerce power must not run up against any other provision in the Constitution. Second, there is the text of the Commerce Clause itself, which requires that Congress regulate interstate commerce, commerce among the several states. Well, this as the court has held, may reach wholly interstate con conduct that affects the interstate market, it does require a nexus between the wholly intrastate conduct and the interstate market that Congress is otherwise regulating. As the Supreme Court held in Lopez, 
um, the Gun Free Schools Act case and United States versus Morrison, um, the court should not need to pile inference upon inference to see the link between the conduct regulated and uh, interstate commerce. Now here, when you have a $43 billion drag on the nation's economy, uh, $43 billion a year drag on the nation's economy, I don't think you have to pile inference upon inference to see the relationship between the decision not to purchase health insurance and its effect on the interstate commerce market. So these limits are real and mean that upholding the mandate will not lead to some sort of unfettered federal police power. Um, but I get that this doesn't necessarily answer some of the uh, powerful concerns that Randy has articulated and that I think many Americans have, which is that they don't like being told what to do. <laughs> they don't like being mandated to do anything. I get it. I don't like to be told what to do either. But when our nation's founders came to Philadelphia to craft the Constitution, they came with the idea of creating a national government that had the power to create national solutions to national problems. And they specifically gave Congress the very powerful authority to regulate interstate commerce. And at the founding, the idea of regulate included the idea of um, directing. Um, so Congress has the power to direct certain conduct when it comes to uh, interstate commerce. And you know you may not like that, and so you vote out the people who direct you in ways you don't like, but that doesn't mean that uh, the Constitution doesn't give the authority. Um, and finally, I just want to get to the point that um, Randy made at the end of his remarks about whether or not um, the conservative justices um, will or should feel constrained by precedent to vote to uphold the act. Now, I'm not going to make any predictions here because you never know what the Supreme Court will do, but I think that there is a, a good reason to believe that the mandate will be upheld, and not just by a 5-4 vote with swing justice Anthony Kennedy voting with the more liberal justices, but I think based on Comstock, uh, Chief Justice Roberts might be a possible vote, and I think uh, Justice Scalia and Raich uh, will have a very hard time getting around his ruling um, if he uh, wants to be seen as respecting precedent and the text and history of the Constitution as he claims. So with that, I uh, look forward to your comments and questions, and uh, thank you again for including me.